And so you have basically social media platforms that are being used to disseminate what used to be journalism, but have no ethical standard that they have to be held to. And so you get this great, amazing tool to push propaganda on people. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the latest episode of Journalists Are My Heroes. This is the podcast where I talk to working journalists and others to try to reconnect people with what it even means to be a journalist. We can't seem to agree on that anymore, and the local news economy is in a deep, deep crisis. Now, there has been no shortage of media news in recent days, as usual. The two largest newspaper chains, Gannett and Gatehouse, are trying to merge and scramble desperately toward a profitable digital future. The 2020 presidential campaign is heating up as candidates flock to the Iowa State Fair for their ritual diet of corn dogs and stump speeches. Now, the local news crisis and polarized politics are good context for my latest guest, Laura Dawn. I spoke to her this week from her home in California. She's chief creative officer of a new aggregator called FrontPageLive.com that launched this summer. The shorthand description is that it's a progressive answer to the massively popular Drudge Report or an attempt to, quote, strengthen the digital infrastructure of the progressive left, unquote. But it goes much deeper than that, as you'll hear in our interview. Among the team that launched the site is none other than former Fox News campaign reporter Carl Cameron. Now, Laura isn't a journalist, obviously, by the traditional definition. She's an activist who has been a writer, director, strategist, and producer of social justice media campaigns with more than 500 million views of her online work and whose content has reached about 1 billion people worldwide. She was the seventh employee of MoveOn.org and also runs her own agency, Art Not War, with her partner, Darren. She talks in this interview about how she was among those targeted by Cambridge Analytica in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election. At first, I was worried that it would be easy for me to be guilty of hyperbole by using a phrase like partisan digital warfare in the title of this episode. But then again, probably not. The way the political battle now rages online with such sophisticated and micro-targeted campaigns makes it harder than ever to sort out the propagandists from the activists and from the journalists. And it's the journalists who seem to be struggling most of all to hold their line. I'm a lifelong nonpartisan, but this partisan digital information battle is one of the biggest forces now shaping journalism. This is scary but relevant stuff. So let's get to my interview with Laura Dawn of FrontPageLive.com. Well, hey, welcome, Laura Dawn, to the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time uh, to spend some time with me to talk about journalism and, uh, and FrontPageLive.com. Now, you have a, a long and storied history in activism that, uh, you know, that will touch on as we get into this conversation, but FrontPageLive.com, that's your latest project as chief creative officer, right? Yes, true. And what is this all about? I mean, what is FrontPageLive? Well, FrontPageLive is basically an aggregator, a news aggregator. Um, we wanted to have a place where everyone could come and get the daily news that matters to them uh, all in one place. Um, 
put a snapshot of all the best stories and tweets and videos and also have a way to take an easy action. There's an action button uh, next to most of the stories. So if you read something that moves you uh, and makes you feel like, I wish I could do something about this, there's actually information on that one click away. Um, and mostly, I think, Front Page Live sprung from a desire to strengthen the digital infrastructure uh, of, well, I don't want to say the progressive left, uh, although I will say that facts seem to have a liberal bias these days. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, the, the goal was not really to be, uh, to have a liberal or progressive bias, although I would say there's a little bit of, you know, it, it would be disingenuous to say that it wasn't a group of progressives putting this together. Although I don't mm -hmm. think Carl Cameron would, would, you know, define himself as progressive, but it was who a group is, of people. Yeah. Campaign, want, campaign Carl, who was with Fox yeah, News. Right? Yeah. He was at Fox News for a long time. I think the thing that we all shared was a desire to get fact-based information to people at the touch points where they live. Um, and also a shared dismay at the sort of massive and quite lethal digital infrastructure that the right has built, um, which is not based in fact a lot of the time, uh, and I think is really hurting the country in some really deep ways. So this was our tiny way of trying to provide a pinpoint of light, fact-based information, a way to take action uh, if you feel compelled to, and uh, a place where like-minded people could find all of the hottest news in one place since we're sort of being bombarded all the time. And the other thing that we really wanted was to make sure that we were upholding, you know, basic journalistic standards. There's a lot of news aggregators out there in both spaces, more on the right, but some on the left, but that aren't, and some of them are quite popular and, and get a lot of traffic, but they're not holding themselves always to uh, a journalistic standard um, that I, that I, that I, you know, they're not a, a source that I can trust. If I see something and it has one of those tags on it, I have to go look it up to make sure that it's real um, yeah. or the framing might just be really disingenuous. So that's something that we were trying to do is take that up a notch, get people information in the way that they like to consume it these days, but make sure that it's fact-based. Yeah. I mean, one of the shorthands is that uh, what this is, this is sort of a, an equivalent to the Drudge Report, right? Yeah. But, you know, but as you, but you see that, as, but you see this as using the uh, framework of the Drudge Report, but with a higher journalistic standard. That's how you would kind of convey that. It's, it's a basic framework of the Drudge Report, although one of the things that we found after we launched it is that people actually want us to... People want to share short, this is going to sound terrible, I'm saying this to I know you're a lifelong journalist, but, and I think it's kind of terrible too, but people really have a desire to share more concise versions of deeper journalistic stories, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, um, we've seen that in the industry for, for years. Yeah, so so if, if, the, if the audience wants that, right, it, why not provide it? So we're, we, le we started leaning in very quickly to writing a kind of synopsis of some of the bigger stories of the day, putting several links in it. So if they want to go in, a t you know, get a deeper dive on those particular subjects, they can. And those have been sharing very, very well. Um, the site actually did really, really well in its first month. 
So, you know, we've, we've leaned into that. And if the site grows, we'll probably have to uh, get more writers uh, to, to do that as well. But the original idea was just to be basically an answer to the Drudge Report. Yeah. And so what do you do as chief creative officer? What does that role really mean then? That's so funny. My family asks the same question. What is it that you do anyway? <laughs> Anytime you have creative in the title, people tend to ask that. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I was really responsible for the look and feel of the site um, and was a part of this very small group you know, that launched it. So a lot of discussions about what the site should do, uh, how its functionality, how it should feel. Um, the branding, all that kind of stuff. Um, we created the video template for the videos that we've done with Carl. Uh, and also we did a great video that went pretty viral with a wonderful on-air personality, Ken Allen, and uh, helped actually with some of the initial hiring too of, of the team, helped put the team together, helped Joe put the team together. And that's, I guess that's a pretty good description of what, yeah. <laughs> what the team creative officer does. I mean, kind of like a managing editor in a way. I guess in a way where look, it's a small group and, uh, and it's a scrap and it's a small and scrappy group, which I'm used to, you know, I was the seventh person hired at move on and I'm used to sort of five jobs in one kind of thing. Uh, so that's a very familiar space for me is the, we it move on. We called it the geek organizing model. You keep it, <laughs> you keep a team small and lean, but you have each person, you think of it as a circle and each person has a constellation of skills that overlaps with the next, but never the exact same skill set. And that's a great way to, you know, get a small team firing uh, pretty hard and accomplish a lot. Yeah. Now I know, I mean, obviously people know what, uh, what a front page means more or less, although the nature of that has completely changed in the last generation. But was the naming of it any sort of uh, conundrum? I mean, I know there's uh, kind of an extreme right-wing front page mag out there, another yes. site. But was that how, how did you land on the name? So there was actually quite a bit of research that was done into the name that Joe really was uh, the leader of. Um, obviously, we all had input it went through many rounds and finally we landed on front page live. Um, it, I hate to say this, but it tested really well. Mm. So we knew that people responded to it well, but we liked the idea that it was live because the internet feels like um, a sort of live crazy frontier. Um, and also the idea that it was, um, you know, it's, it's different than the front pages of your, if you will. So I don't know, we landed there. We all liked it. Um, we played with a couple of different versions of the branding. And once we were able to sort of get that sizzle on the, the, the bumpers for the, for the video content that we do, mm-hmm. um, once we were able to see that, that visual, we all kind of felt like, yes, this is it. And so then we actually brought that sizzle over to the logo as well. And it's kind of stayed with them the whole the whole branding. I'm wondering if anyone is finding this interesting. Only if you're sort of like a marketing geek like me, do you think that this is an interesting conversation? Well, <laughs> I, I think Let's it's fair talk to talk about the logo some more. No, no, that's fine. I mean, this is a this is a very journalism geek type podcast. So I think, okay, okay. And, and you know, I think you're in the middle of some work that is that reflects the changing nature of not just journalism, but the fracturing of it too. Um, I mean, another reason I think that you guys exist is how just all the changes to social media and particularly Facebook in recent years. And you know, we saw, I mean, I was part of media where that, uh, that did not pan out for us in terms of revenue or you know, growing our audience ultimately that well. And I think you guys saw dwindling returns from Facebook. Um, and that's another reason to launch this. 
Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's a bigger subject, but the basic truth is that most people get their news and information from Facebook and Facebook does not define itself as a media company and it doesn't feel beholden to the same journalistic standards that, you know, uh, your alma mater would, would hold itself to. I will say this, you know, my background is not journalism. It is activism, but uh, as the creative and cultural director of Move On, I was responsible for all of the media that we put out for a solid 10 years. And uh, my my partner, Darren Murphy, who worked on most of that content with me, used to be the, you know, a research chief at Condé Nast. So we held ourselves to a higher standard than most of, you know, when I later briefly worked for a journalism, uh, a journalistic uh, project, we were holding ourselves to a higher standard in terms of fact check, fact checking and research at Move On than I encountered an actual, you know, real media company. So that to me has always been something that's been incredibly important at Move On. It was incredibly important because we could be sued. You know, we're, we're in a political partisan atmosphere where people are constantly looking for us to make any kind of mistake. Um, and so it was really important that everything be airtight. So that's just something that I've brought with me through all of the content that I've made for, you know, probably over 40 social justice groups at this point. And so and and I just think that it's, you know, one of the biggest problems that we have right now is that, you know, when I speak with uh, and I do speak with Trump voters, (laughs) I have some in my family, had a lot of talks with them. One of the biggest things that comes up over and over again is this feeling of we don't know what's true anymore. You know, which set of facts are you listening to? And so you have basically social media platforms that are being used to disseminate what used to be journalism, but have no ethical standard that they have to be held to. And so you get this great, amazing tool to push propaganda on people to manipulate and persuade. And that is what it's being used for. And so the only thing I can think to do is find ethical ways to utilize the same digital structure to get people information in the same ways that is fact-based. That's uh, yeah. I mean, so that that's fascinating to me. Often on this podcast, I ask people, "Why the hell did you want to be a journalist?" And I, you know, I point taken that you're not a journalist, but you've used rigorous fact-checking and standards in your activism. But at this point. Do you, I mean, do you think that you're basically a journalist in the new, uh, I guess, the new information economy? Uh, do you sometimes I mean, I, think that? I think that the, that, well, I think that what we define as journalism has expanded, right? So under the current definition, <laughs> uh, under the current, in the current uh, media environment that we are in, yeah, I'm a journalist. Um, you know, I'm, I have certainly been accused of being a propagandist. Uh, I don't think that that is a correct terminology to use when you're holding yourself to this kind of standard. Uh, but do I have a point of view and would I like to persuade people to it? Sure, uh, absolutely. But I think that that is a part of what new journalism is doing. For better or worse, persuasion is a huge part of the communications and media landscape. And whether you're persuading someone to click on a headline or persuading them to care about kids in cages, I just don't see what the difference is. It's just that one has an altruistic uh, and compassionate uh, goal and the other one's goal is clicks and, and, and money, right? So I don't value the clicks and money more than I value the compassion. 
So if you, you know, call me a journalist or, or not, I do have a point of view and my point of view is not really predicated on making money. And I understand that most media companies do have to do that, but we're in a landscape now where major, you know, blue chip media companies change headlines depending on the micro-targeted audience. You know, the, the, the headline that I see that entices me to click on something is not the same thing as a, a Trump voter in Orange County. And so if you have major blue chip media companies already doing that level of, of pers- I mean, that's persuasion, right? So I, to me, I don't really see the difference. That's, <laughs> but, you know. that's in, well, that's interesting. I mean, I guess like one response would be that it, people often disagree on how to act out their compassion, you know, whether, you know, from the right or the left or elsewhere. I mean, I wonder, speaking of headlines, uh, that, that makes me think of the recent New York Times headline, um, you know, Trump urges unity versus racism, which was coming out of his uh, televised response, you know, to the shootings in, in Dayton and El Paso, yeah. which, which, I mean, which uh, caused a firestorm uh, for the New York Times, uh, largely from the left. And I guess maybe that's, that is wrapped up in what we're talking about here, because you have the classic nonpartisan newsroom in, in a sense, although Obviously, some people would say New York Times is is left or, or whatever, but but a more classic newsroom getting assailed from, I guess, from the more progressive left that you're, you know, media left that you're a part of now. Um, so I wonder, I wonder if you looked at that headline and what your reaction was, or if this is part of what we're talking about right now, the, the you know being being more, uh, act, you know, advocating for your, uh, you know, uh, be, being persuasive versus being non-par- nonpartisan or impartial or falsely impartial, maybe some people would, would say. Right. I look, I respect The New York Times, um, but, you know, people on the left would argue that The New York Times was, you know, partially responsible for our in- invasion of Iraq. Right. Mm-hmm. So people on the left do not see The New York Times as a leftist paper. They see it as a, a moderate corporate, you know, news journalistic entity. And I think in some ways the best shot we have at impartial reporting. Um, I think there's a handful of papers that you can say that about. So I very much uh, support The New York Times and subscribe to them. Um, however, they have been vilified and framed, of course, as fake news and liberal paper and all of that for you know, decades now by the right. So to the extent of if you try to talk with conservative voters, which I do quite a bit uh, in, in, in a bunch of capacities, both personal and research based, uh, you can't cite the New York Times as uh, a source. You could say, oh, this this is actually a fact. It happened. It was reported in the New York Times. And they'll say, well, that's fake news. And so, you know, so that's where we really are. Um, you know, so I think that that's the deeper problem, not, you know, whether some left wing people got upset about that particular headline. Look, you know, my feeling, my personal feeling on that headline was it was correct, but it also, of course, did not take into consideration that, um, you know, how disingenuous it is to call for unity after engaging in so much divisive racism for so long. So, you know, uh, I don't think that they were in the wrong for reporting it the way that they did, but I understand the reaction to it as well. But that's the kind of thing that you usually, I mean, that to me is, that's a healthy society working that kind of shit out. Can I say that? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yes. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like those kinds of conversations and that kind of pull and push, that's something that a healthy society is engaging in. What isn't healthy is lying to people, straight out lying to people. Um, 
And, you know, well, here's a for instance. So the, the, the conservative movement in general has built this massive digital distribution and influencer network, and it's saturating most digital channels with right-wing content. So if you look at like a big visual, I have like a big visual of this, you can see you know, little pockets of, of blue, like the New York Times or even Google or, you know, Washington Post or whatever. All of that is just completely saturated by all of the different interconnections of right-wing blogs and channels mm -hmm. and Trump's Twitter and Breitbart. So it's like this, this intricate and highly effective constellation of sites and social channels that power just this conveyor belt of coordinated misinformation and alternative facts and what some people even call weaponized propaganda, right? And mm -hmm. they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year leveraging that distribution network. And we just don't have anything like that. You know, what we have are all these independent media sites that are not working together. You know, the, the New York Times is not working together with the Washington Post to like cross share and elevate each other's content, right? As far as I know, like that's not happening. And so we just basically don't have, it's almost like there's two different playing fields, right? And what it's done is changed a certain segment of the population's perception of reality, you know? Um, you know, from my perspective, this is, you know, they're utilizing Facebook as like a highly effective brainwashing machine. Um, somebody might think that that language is too strong, but... I don't think so. I actually think that's exactly what's going on. Well, you, um, because we've been able to chart, we've been able to chart it. Like, here's where they start this, and here's the negative shift in perception. Here's where they started doing this kind of onslaught on, say, the perception of Robert Mueller. And here we can watch over these months as they pushed out this content, the negative public shift in perception. Yeah, and it's intentional, right? Well, well yeah, and you've, you, I mean, you've hit on, you know, what my next question was going to be. You know, with your history, you say, you know, forty plus uh, social justice groups and going back to MoveOn.org and Vote for Change and everything. I mean, you've been part of this for quite a while and have a long track record. And so, you, you know, you talk about the saturation from the right in the digital realm. And I was, you know, the question was going to be, so why haven't, why aren't you more saturated on the left? And is it, is it just a matter of money and being more fractured because you guys have had less money to spend and have not had as concentrated an effort? Is that what it comes down to? That is such a good question. <laughs> <laughs> such a good question. Um, and I, that's, I think about that a lot. So it's a couple of things. Um, one, there is a, so the Koch brothers fund a lot of this stuff, right? And they have a very specific financial incentive to fund it. There's a whole financial incentive to getting people in office that support their ideology. And they're and it. And it's, you know, it's pretty clear it's oil, right? So there's a, there's a major financial incentive. So amongst the big donors that fund a lot of this stuff, that fund a lot of this stuff on the right, there is a direct financial incentive to what they're doing. That financial incentive does not really occur on the left. If the Soros, one of the Soros' foundations, you know, fund something, they're not directly, there's no industry that's directly then kicking them back billions of dollars. You know what I mean? They're just doing it because they think it's the right thing to do. So there's just a a very serious difference between the funding apparatus of the right, which is a self-interested funding apparatus that's putting people into power and putting an ideology into power that's then feeding them back billions of dollars through the oil industry and other industries like that, 
and the funding apparatus on the left is just not it's not set up like that well it could there there could be and uh you know, whatever self whatever self interest exists on the left, it basically is more fractured. Then, I mean, if you if you have yes. the, those forces, they're not as concentrated and they're not as big a player individually as oil. Um, yeah. Although you could talk about tech, I suppose. I mean, you could talk about big tech and and, and, and something else, and, and uh, that might not break down as neatly, but it's certainly a force. Yeah. There, well, there, certainly there are huge funders on the left too. So then the second issue I think is that. For whatever reason, and there's a couple of, of reasons that I've uncovered, the major funders on the left are very afraid of the word marketing, and they're very afraid of this kind of persuasion. Um, and I think for some good reasons, you know, I've encountered funders who have said, we just don't do this kind of thing. That's just not what we do. You know, we have to just give people the facts and let people make their own minds up, you know, this kind of like digital brainwashing, you know, we just are not going to engage in that. And I think that that high ground is really commendable. But, you know, that saying goes, the thing about the high ground is they'll bury you in it. <laughs> um, so what happens is that it's just created this vacuum um, and that the other side just does not have a problem with this kind of marketing either. So these kind of marketing techniques are being used by all kinds of products, you know, I don't want to name any products, but they're all using it. And I know because basically I become, became obsessed with this after the 2016 election. Um, I ran an outside campaign called Humanity for Hillary, and it was specifically aimed at uh, pushing millennial women voters towards Hillary Clinton. And I was very happy to do that. It was the last three months before the election. And, you know, the choice was clear to me. It was between Hillary Clinton or Trump. I thought Hillary Clinton needed to win. And so we jumped in and we did this. And we basically created one of the first progressive influencer networks. We were able to combine and organize 72 different Facebook pages to cross-share this content. And so we reached 275 million people in three months, 50, over 50 million views of the videos and memes alone. So we recognized the power of this. And because it got a lot of attention, I think it got like $10 million worth of earned media we were in someone's sites. We didn't know who. We found out later it was Cambridge Analytica, which I found out when I found uh, a couple of their email addresses on the back end of our website. So wow. we were, in a sense, hacked by Cambridge Analytica. We would put out a piece of content that they seemed to know was coming. And then the minute it hit the Internet, there'd be a thousand gifs of Pepe the Frog raping Hillary Clinton on our page. I had to hire somebody to clean up our pages every day that we were just being, it was, I've, you know, and I've been digitally organizing for 17 years. I've never seen anything like this. So I would click through and try to find out who are these people that are showing up every day, spreading these horrible stories. They were spreading the Pizzagate story, just attacking us. And we did a little bit of, you know, investigation. We found that both Art Not War, my company, and Humanity for Hillary were on a list on Reddit. So at first we thought, wow, they have the most organized, organic, like, army of people. Like, how are they doing this? You know, how are they getting thousands of people to target these websites? And then I would click through and be like, okay, this person who's spreading this vile stuff is like a soccer mom from Florida. And then I would look at that soccer mom page a little closer and realize that this soccer mom from Florida also seemed to post a lot on Twitter about Ukrainian politics. And I was just, you know, my brain was just going, who, what is going on? Like something is going on <laughs> that I've never seen happen on the internet before. 
And that sparked uh, this thing that I called the ethical engine. I put together a task force of people mostly outside of the world of political marketing. And so they came and, and really helped me look at this. And they said, well, they're just doing the same digital marketing techniques that we've all been doing. I mean, here's how you do it for this brand. Here's how we do it for this. Here's how we do it for that. Are you telling me that the Democrats aren't doing this? And the answer, of course, was no, they're not. I mean, they're doing some variations of it. They're certainly using voter data. You know, they're, they're doing some targeting for sure, but not the way you guys are doing it and not based on emotional persuasion. Right. Um, and so, the, you know, the long and short answer is it's it's being done. There is some catch up being done, I think, at this point. But when you're talking about this kind of mass marketing based on audience segmentation, right, based on data points. You know, supposedly Cambridge Analytica had like 5,000 data points on every single American. If someone has continued to have that data, and I would make every assumption that someone does, that those data points have only deepened, right? They only know more and more and more about the audience that they're talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would even go, you know, this makes may sound a little tinfoil hat, but when <laughs> just a little <laughs> but these days everything sounds a little tempo yeah we have reality tv stars or the president um so when trump basically started his campaign again right after he took office you know people said why would he do that no one else has ever done that the group that i was working with were, said oh we know why he's doing that they're going to keep all of those facebook ads running they're going to keep doing this to keep gathering information on people and i believe that's what they've done so, you know, they're playing a very, very smart, very long game. And, um, you know, we, we have a website to counter. <laughs> right. Well, no, I, there's more than that going on, but, you know. Well, I, you haven't. Page live. I'm going to fix it all. But, no. well, well, no. Um, well, you haven't said this in so many words, but, you know, we talked through all this. And what I hear you saying in some essence is that this, like this, uh, this fighting fire with fire, you know, the more, more polarized kind of partisan or activist media coming from both sides now with, you know, with all the differences we've talked about. But in that, within this environment, the gentle little glowing candles of traditional journalism are not enough to make a difference. I mean, you're saying that it's to the point where activists have to be journalists uh, and uh, otherwise, uh, people people can't find their way through uh, fact and lie. Yeah, I mean, which which know, which is, really kind of scares me, and which really makes me sad. I guess. Well, it terrifies me. So here's a great example. When I started studying this, um, I have uh, someone I know who was a Trump voter, right? And I began engaging with this person, trying to you know really reach out to find out. Because as you said, people view, sometimes people have a different idea of what compassion is. Like, what are our differences? Because I know this person, and I think of them as an intelligent person. And, it, and I think of them as a compassionate person. So I, want to under, I wanted to understand what about Trump appealed to him and where he was getting his information from. And we engaged in several talks. And one of the big ones was immigration, an issue that I'd never heard him actually talk about before Trump. So... He's been on this earth for many decades, has not paid any attention to immigration as an issue. Suddenly, it was the most important issue to him, right? Mm -hmm. So he shows me a meme with a whole bunch of facts and figures about how much immigrants are costing us, what a drain they are in society, blah, blah, blah. And And he says, 
And I want you to know, because I had told him, you have to verify. You can't just accept that something you see on the Internet through one of these sites is true. So he says, you'll be very proud of me. I looked it up and everything in this meme is true. And so I'm looking at the meme and I know something about this issue. And it doesn't look, <laughs> the numbers do not look right to me. So I look it up. Now, this is on my search engine, not his, because, of course, we're all in our own filter bubble. He's going to get mm -hmm. a different set of results than I'm going to get. But even on me, liberal Laura's search engine, right, <laughs> the first four things that come up are all separate websites that verify the facts of this meme. And then when I dig a little deeper, I find that at least three of them are funded by the Heritage Foundation. And I have to go five, six, seven deep to find the real numbers and an explanation about why those numbers are actually not correct. How would this, how would my friend not be incredibly confused by this? How would he know which numbers to believe? Which numbers are actually true, right? Yeah. So that's what we're, we're in a situation where it's not just about what they put. It's not just about what Fox News says and what about and about what's then regurgitated online. But it's about how they've gamed SEO. And the, that search engine optimization is, is very real because if anyone actually looks to verify the facts, if they've gamed that well enough, they will find a confirmation of their facts. And then you have an entire alternate worldview that they've created. And it's like, a, I mean, I would call it a radical alt-right media ecosystem. And unfortunately, the main thing that it's really building is hostility, you know, to the establishment, to immigrants, uh, racial resentment. I mean, those are the things that it's mostly trafficking in. And that's why I think it's so dangerous and that we have to do everything we can to create a, a sense that there is a fact-based reality that people can can trust and can rely on again. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, SEO is is one of the metrics that is everything these days. So what is what is your metric for success for Front Page Live, and how soon do you guys have to meet it? And is it, I mean, is it tied up in the 2020 timeline, or how are you thinking about that? Well, <laughs> well we hoped to get, uh, our goal is to break a million page views the first month, and we did that. So, you know, that's about all I can say for now. <laughs> we, we reached our first goal. That seemed like a major accomplishment. Um, and our long-term goals are just to grow and strengthen the team and continue to help elevate. So one of the things that a site like this does is it actually elevates all the other sites, right? If we, can use, if we can get the kind of traffic that Drudge has, which is exponentially higher than, than a million page views a, a month, what you do, though, so say you could get up and be competitive with Drudge, what you do is you actually are strengthening the audience and the perception and lengthening the, the, the narrative tale of everything that Blue Chip Media uh, reports, right? So if the New York Times breaks a story, Washington Post breaks a story, whoever it is, we're actually really helping them uh, in, in a sense if we're successful. And so that kind of reiteration of fact-based narratives is what we're after. We just want people to see it over and over. If it's true, if it's something they need to know about, we want them to see it over and over and over again. And we want them to see it however they best are open to it. If they're not the kind of person that's going to read uh, an in-depth thing in a blue chip media source, we're going to parse it down for them into two paragraphs and maybe they'll read it there, but at least they're getting a reiteration of a fact-based story. 
Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, depending upon if we have more than one or two blue chip media sources left in this country. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, uh, that is really sad. Uh, uh, so I wonder, you know, uh, when you started on this path, uh, you probably never imagined you know, operating in a world where you're getting torpedoed by Cambridge Analytica. I, uh, you, you know, one of the other things in your far off past is a career in, in pop music. I wonder if you ever just <laughs> I wonder if you dream of just going back into uh, entertainment and just uh, just letting it all go because it's become such a circus. <laughs> um. <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> uh, I will say that, uh, you know, Darren, my partner, Darren, uh, who also was, you know, part of my career in music and is now my partner at Art Not War and has had the same kind of worn many hats in his life. Uh, we constantly have a joke that we're just going to stop all this and start playing like jazz covers and be like Marty and Elaine, you know, <laughs> in L.A. and just like find a place to just sing the blues and <laughs> for the rest of our lives. And I and I love that fantasy. Like I really, there's a part of me that would just love to do that. I I would never want to go after like a career in music again. I'm too old. But uh, I would love to be like a fading lounge lizard somewhere. Oh my gosh, that would be great. Um, who knows? You know, I'm not dead yet. Could happen. Uh, I love it. Fading lounge lizard. I love that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Like kind of like a, like a glamorous one, but with wrinkles. You know. Um, <laughs> That would be great. Uh, I love to sing and I still do sing. I'm singing, you know, I, I, occasionally I'm singing with Moby next month. Uh, it's, you know, we basically sing at fundraisers, you know, yeah. um, we perform together at fundraisers. So that's always fun when I get to do it. And I'm always sort of surprised I can still do it. <laughs> I'm like, Hey, I can still sing. Um, but I will tell you that I think uh, that the next 18, next two years are really critical I would even go so far as to say it's like a really critical time uh, in human history. Uh, it's not just about Trump. We are passing tipping points in the environment that we're not supposed to pass until 2070, until 2100. Climate uh, change is happening much faster than most people understand. Um, and I think in Iowa, y'all are experiencing that this year with the flooding. Um, and I think if people could wake up and understand that the real existential, the real existential threat at their door is this climate emergency, um, that it would maybe inform who they vote for. Um, I mean, I was making a joke the other day. I said, you know, I ran a lot of really hard hitting ads against Mitt Romney and I worked really hard to defeat him and I would pay money for him to be the president right now. Like I would empty my bank account if Mitt Romney could be the president right now. Because there's a certain point where we there, you know, there's two political parties and there are men who I think of as good people who I just really disagree with ideolo ide ideologically. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think Mitt Romney is the, is a horrifying monster of a person. I think he's someone whose politics I disagree with. Right. Mm -hmm. I think he's sane. We just have disagreements about what kind of policy would be best for people. And we probably actually agree on a couple of things because he was actually a pretty good governor. Uh, when he was a governor. So that's not what we're in. That's not who's running the country now. Um, there's something else going on now that is really scary. And the biggest thing that scares me is that we have a president that won't listen to science, that is actively suppressing the words and the reports of scientists. And, you know, we've had these inflection moments in human history before. We had a hole in the ozone. You and I are both old. And I tell, like, 
millennials that work for us about the hole in the ozone. They're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but you're old enough to remember the hole in the ozone, right? Right, right, right. Well, it took massive... It took it took massive government cooperation to close down an industry that was causing that that hole. And we solved it. We fixed it. And there wasn't any of this partisan BS about whether that hole existed or not. There weren't there wasn't a billion dollars of ads being spent. A billion dollars a year are being spent in anti-climate denying propaganda online. A billion. No one ran a billion dollars worth of ads saying, don't be chicken little. There is no hole. Ignore the whole. No, we just listened to scientists and we solved it. And that's not happening now. And so that's terrifying to me. And so what I need to do is use all of my superpowers that don't include singing (laughs) to do everything I can to see if we can change that in the next couple of years um, and see if we can get real information to people let them vote on the facts. I think if people understood that the president absolutely must address the climate crisis that we're in, the climate emergency that we're in, maybe they would think twice about voting for him. Um, I don't know. Maybe I expect too much of people, but I still believe that if people are given real information, they usually make the right decisions. So... That's well, why I'm doing this. Well, thanks, thanks, Laura, for um, you know taking time to talk on a podcast that is dedicated to closing <laughs> the gaping hole in the ozone of the journalism industry. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, good luck with FrontPageLive.com. I uh, like I say, I you know I come from traditional newsrooms, and um, I, I fear for them. But uh, this is interesting to hear about the kind of the new partisan journalism space, for lack of a better term. And good luck with with that and with your eventual fading lounge lizard career. (laughs) That would be a totally decent way to to go out. So I'm I'm okay with that. (laughs) Take care. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Journalists Are My Heroes. You can find this podcast under the news category in your favorite podcatcher, whether that's Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or another. We're hosted on the Anchor platform. You can not only listen there, but also easily support us. This is the 16th episode in our first season. More interviews are on the way. Reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram under the handle at Journalism Hero, at Journalism Hero. Thanks, and we'll catch you again soon.